Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Also going to say goodbye to our middle school and high school students. You can head off to your classes and we will see you later. Goodbye, students. Uh, thank you for that etymology of the word decide. Uh, first of all, I had never even heard the breakdown of that suffix before. Second, I feel very affirmed in my personal relationship with my wife um, because we have an ongoing thing where do you ever make a decision? I, I don't know how relatable this is. This just might be me and Carolee having a moment. But um, how, how in your relationship you make a decision and then four hours later, you're driving in the car, and that decision gets brought up again. It's like, I thought we decided that already. And Carly likes to relitigate and kind of revisit the decision we've already, and wonder a little bit more about, I'm like, we're past that. Okay, just us, okay. Um, no, no? Oh, thank goodness, I've never appreciated. No, you're on my side, right? Yeah, nobody can hear this online, who they're cheering for, but, uh, oh man. Um, last week, we finished with a bit of a teaching on, on suffering. And uh, I'm a Canucks fan, and so uh, uh, I was really relating. Um, the only thing that made um, watching last night's game a little more tolerable is I accidentally taped it on Omni, so it was the Punjabi play-by-play um, uh, -play of the game, and it is fascinating. To, I don't know what they're saying. Every once in a while here, I recognize a name or they'll say things like offside in English. Uh, um, but that was like the only good thing about that game last night. So I'm, I was in uh, deep study and practice for my whole suffering thing um, last night. Oh my goodness. So I was hoping for more amens and, and uh, yeah, commiserating for that too. Thank you. Um, as you know, we've been working through the book of Romans, and last week we were in Romans 5. And um, just to kind of flip things and affirm my wife and spending time with my wife, we were actually driving in the car yesterday, and she's uh, often working through studies on her own. And one of the studies that she's doing is a Proverbs 31 ministry uh, study where they, I guess they look at the first five chapters of different books. I've got that wrong. Okay, anyways, um, it was, she was doing one on Romans, so I don't listen very well. That's my other problem. But uh, she's doing one on Romans. And if I get this wrong, don't correct me because it's really quite uh, crucial to my message. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just be wrong. And we'll roll with it. All right? But she was talking about, uh, or, or the, the, the teaching was how the first five chapters of Romans are really focused on the idea of justification. Of how God justifies us. Uh, despite our wrongs and uh, overlooking our, our rights. Neither of them matter because it's, it's the work of God who justifies us. And, and then what we're going to see here in chapter 6 is a bit of a hinge into a new idea where now it starts to focus on our sanctification. We've been justified by God so what does this mean in our walk going forward? And we're going to see how he sanctifies us and, and how we work out and walk out that sanctification. Today I want to do something weird. 
um, weird, but we'll probably do it more often in the future. I'm quite excited about it. Um, I, I believe and we believe as a core value of our church that the word of God is inerrant, that it is for us and it is, is breathed by the Spirit, co-authored by God. It's, it's the word as he wants it. And so we're going to read through, as we do, every word of Romans 6 today. And I believe that when that goes out there, that God's going to do something with it. And then intermixed, I'll have little things to say. But today, I think almost more than ever, I, I want to, with you, invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. Because the words that I'm going to kind of share, uh, obviously the words I read will be God's word, but the words I'm going to share... Um, they've got limited potential. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do in every one of us is limitless. And this morning as we were praying before the service, I, I, I want to speak a little bit to those of you who might be watching online live right now. Hello. Um, but maybe even you're watching this after the fact or listening to it on our podcast. Um, I want to tell you that what we're going to pray is we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in us today. And he is not limited to this space and this space in time. You could be watching this or listening to this three weeks from now. And we believe that the Holy Spirit can do that same work in you, in your heart, in your mind, as he will do this morning. So your part today or your part online, I want you to, uh, you can physically hold your hands out ready to receive. We are going to invite the Holy Spirit, but I, I want you to be really intentional about this. I want you to personalize this. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in you, as I will be inviting him to do a work in me, so that we don't just hear, we are not just hearers of the word, but it will sink into the spots that needs to get touched by those, those words, and it will do a work in us. All right? So if you wouldn't mind, just bowing your heads, closing your eyes, and if you want to put your hands out ready to receive, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And, and what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit of the Bible. It is the Holy, you are the Holy Spirit of the Bible, but you are doing the same things today. You have not ceased in your work, and you want to work in us. Today, we want to very intentionally invite you, uh, each one of us who are a part of this message today, we want to invite you to speak to us. And Father, that might be a difficult thing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about sin, and, and Father, I pray that where we need to be convic convicted, where we need to be broken, that you will address those things in our lives. And at the same time, we know that you are the Prince of Peace and that you won't leave us in that point of brokenness. That you want to meet us in our brokenness and you want to point to hope. You want to come in and bring, uh, bring peace, that shalom, that completeness, that wholeness. And so, Father, I pray that you would do things that my words are completely incapable of doing in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds today. In Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. All right, well, let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 6. Let me read it through to you and let's break it down. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. Remember, we left off in, in chapter 5 um, saying that where the law is and where, where sin is, well, grace can abound there all the more. And, and so it's asking the question, well, if, if we've got all this grace, are we just to, to sin so that grace can flex even more? And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, so this question, are we to continue in sin? And that continue word is important. Okay, the, we, we hear over and over how when we sin, that we can be justified by Jesus' saving power. He's covered that sin. We were born into a sin nature and we are going to, we used the example last time, if, if somebody tells me not to drive the car, that car is going to be the most attractive thing in my life. We are drawn to sin. We're going to fail. We will probably have our moments before we leave this room. You're going to have a thought. You're going to think to yourself, oh, David's shirt doesn't match his pants or something. That's sinful. And that could happen. No, I'm just kidding. That, that sin can happen throughout the day. But this is a different uh, language here. It says, are we to continue in sin? This is a sin, uh, a sin, uh, how do I want to explain this? This is a sin where we know that what we're doing is wrong, but we make it a part of our lifestyle. It's, it's not just something where I stub my toe when I drop an F-bomb. It's something where I know that what I'm doing is against what God has for me, his best for me, but I'm just going to keep doing it anyways. This is that question, are we, is that okay? Is that, can we just do whatever we want knowing that God's grace will save us from that sin? And he answers that question very clearly, by no means. A different translation says, certainly not. It can also be translated, perish a thought or away with the notion. That's ridiculous is essentially what he's saying. He says, we who died to sin. And so at this point, Paul has a lot to say about what exactly he means by dying to sin. Uh, but the general point is clear. Christians have died to sin. So they should no longer live in that sin. Ephesians 2, I think it is. Yeah, Ephesians 2 describes how before, before Jesus, we were dead in sin. After Jesus, we are dead to sin. When we baptize people, we talk them through it and, and we explain what we're doing here is we are being buried. We are literally, metaphorically, but in a way literally dying to our sin. We're putting our sin self in the grave and we're rising up as a new creation. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, here this is a specific point of language as well. Uh, baptism uh, describes immersion. And there's very, there are quite a few references. Uh, baptism in water is that you're immersed or covered over with water. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is that you're immersed or covered over in the Holy Spirit. There's even the language in Mark 
10 that we are baptized with suffering. That's where you're covered over with suffering. Here, Paul refers to being baptized, immersed or covered over in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful picture. When we have been covered over, washed over by Jesus, the picture I wish you could all understand is that when the Father, when the perfect Father looks at us, He sees Jesus because that's who we've been covered over by. We have memories or maybe we're living in the moment of our brokenness, our sinful. We know that we are not perfect. But what the Father sees is the work done by Jesus in us. We have been covered over, immersed in Christ Jesus. That means something. Let's look at verse 5. For we have, if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free. Some interesting language there, but it's, it, we can make this clear here. This idea of being, first of all, I love this picture, being united with him. That language in that first line in verse 5, we've been united with him. You know what that's a picture of? I don't know how many horticulturists we have in the, in the group, but it's like being grafted into a tree. And what that means is we, you can actually take a couple of different species of tree. You've got the main tree, and you can graft in another species of tree, and it will start to draw life from the root system of that tree. It will become a part of that plant. It's that word abiding that we talk about. When we talk about abiding in the vine, we are connected, we are attached, we have become one with that tree. And that's what he's talking about when he uses the term uh, united with him. And he says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we talk about dying to sin. We talk about dying to self. And that's hard. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, lie to you about this. Um, our selfishness is everything that pursues our own comfort. It's everything that pursues what we want. It's that hedonist in us. And when we die to ourselves, we are turning our back to that choice. That can be hard. I like comfort. There are things that I I, I, I like to pursue the easy way for me. I don't want to look for the hard way. But when we die to our sin, when we, are, when we are burying the old man, we are putting to death that selfishness that puts us on the throne. But here's the good news. There's, there's a balance to be struck here. That death with Jesus is shared. We, we mimic or we die like Jesus died to ourselves but we are resurrected into something bigger and be more beautiful. His, we are equal participants in his resurrection. We are a new creation. It says here, we know that our old self was crucified with him. This death of the old man is an established fact. This is not something to be debated by Paul. He's talking about it as a sure thing. It happens spiritually when we are identified with Jesus' death and our salvation. So that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This idea of our, bo our body, our flesh, 
our selfish desires, we are putting them to death, and that actually liberates us from sin. When we are putting our ourselves, when we are dying to self, dying to sin, we are actually being freed like slaves who become unshackled. We are being freed from sin. And this begins this, sla- this theme of slavery in chapter 6. We'll talk a lot more about that in just a sec. Uh, in fact, there's a, an example coming up in just a second. He says that we, shall no, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free. I don't know if any of you are around to watch this in the theaters. Actually, if you're a good Christian folk in the 1960s, you probably were not allowed into the, what was it called? That, uh, that's the Den of Sin? No. What's the th- what is the theater called? I don't remember. I'm looking at you, Gore, but uh, it was a place that Christians, a good Christian would never go to a movie theater. But if you did in 1960, you might have seen the movie Spartacus. And good old Kirk Douglas had this quote. Um, He says that death is the only freedom that a slave knows. And that's why he's not afraid of it. And good job, Kirk Douglas. That was a good quote. Um, And it means something. When we're slaves to sin, and we make that decision. That's it. That's enough. I'm done with this. I've seen where sin takes me. One of the reasons why I think Steve and I love preaching it at SNL is, is a lot of the people there have this living concept of where sin takes us. Uh, for some people, it's a little more muted. It's not as obvious, the, the, the journey. He, the 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 enemy is a little more deceptive and it kind of, he just kind of blends in and so we don't necessarily experience the fullness of, of that pathway and the dangers and the outcomes of bad choices. But when we decide that we are done with that slave life where we are, are sick of, of living that sin life, and we're done trying to live according to our own means, when we put self to death, when we die to sin, we're not, we're not afraid of doing that because that's where freedom can come from. That's where we can finally be free from the shackles of that life of pursuing sin. Let's carry on in verse 8. It says, Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. That's that, that balance point. We die, but we also have this resurrection that comes from it. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion. Death will no longer have dominion over us when we die to sin. When we put to death our flesh, and now we start to live as a new creation, we start to live in the Spirit, we don't just have new life here. Yes, there can be beautiful outcomes of walking in sin and then deciding, that's it, I'm done with that. I just had a conversation with a fellow this morning who's working through his steps and he's, he's got he's to talk to his ex and, and that's something he's got to make amends for because he's in the process of changing his ways. He's going to walk a new way and, and that walking a new way is walking towards life and health 
He's got he's to deal with some of this stuff. But this decision to turn and walk a new way can be life-giving in, in the present, in this temporal, earthly, mortal realm. But it also has an eternal impact. We are walking towards eternal life. This is key. The life that he lives, he lives to God. We aren't dead to sin and free from sin and then given eternal life to do just whatever we want. We're called to live for the God who frees us. There's a couple of good quotes. First from Lenski, it says, In us there was nothing even to sicken and to weaken our old man. That's the flesh, the old, the sinful man, much less to murder him by crucifixion. God has to do this. God has to do the work in us. We can't just decide, okay, I'm done sinning. It's, it's the work. And this is that sanctification we start to talk about. God doing a work in us, changing who we are. Yes, we come up like a new creation, but there's still the world around us that's going to affect us. And, and God has to do the work of sanctification in us. Next quote from Spurgeon says, Evil enters us now as an interloper and a stranger and works sad havoc, but it does not abide in us upon the throne. It's an alien and despised and no more honored and delighted in. We are dead to the reigning power of sin. What he's describing here is this decision to die to ourselves and now live for Jesus. Now God is on the throne of our lives. How many of you can relate to this? That sometimes we live a life where we are on the throne of our lives. We do whatever we want all the time. But every once in a while we ask God to visit. God, I'm feeling pretty bad about myself right now. Can you come and wash away my sin, and then I'll see you later. Peace out. Okay? Can, do you, can you relate to that? The, the other, the flip side of this is if we invite God to be on the throne of our lives, then it's sin who comes in as the visitor, who has no place in the throne room. It's sin that is out of place in our life, as opposed to the flip, where God is kind of the visitor, comes in, does a little bit of work, and then he's not really invited to stick around. So I, I, I like this picture. So the question is, who is the stranger in your heart? Who's the, the visitor, and who is on the throne? Let's pick up in verse 11. It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Uh, this, that first part, consider yourselves dead to sin. Another version uh, uses the word reckon. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And this word reckon is, is a part of the word reckoning. It's, it's an accounting term. And Paul tells us to account or reckon the old man as forever dead. And this is, a, this is an interesting one. Is that when we are saved from sin, when we die to ourselves, when we are a new creation... We should count the old man as forever dead. There needs to be this understanding that that's not you anymore. 
And I know I, I struggle with that one sometimes. Sometimes I say, well, I'm just impatient. That's just who I am. And I kind of wash my hands like, I guess I'm going to forgive myself for that or, or I'm just never going to overcome that. But it says here, we're meant to count that old man, that, that old self as forever dead. And interestingly, I, this, is a, this is something I don't know that I've ever noticed before, but found this in a commentary. It says, God never calls us, he never calls us to crucify the old man, but instead to account him as already dead because of our, our, ident our identification with Jesus' death on the cross. Because we identify and we are covered over, remember that idea of being covered over by Jesus? Because that's who we are, we weren't called, we're not the ones that have to go hunting the sin and kill the sin. That work has been done when Jesus was crucified and then we were covered over, immersed, baptized in Christ Jesus. But we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, this comes back to the idea that the death to sin is only one side of the equation. That alive in Jesus is the, the balance point and the beauty and the hope that comes from it. So, let not sin therefore reign. The old man is dead, and there is new life, free from sin in Jesus. Yet many Christians never experience this freedom. Because of unbelief, self-reliance, and maybe ignorance, many Christians never live in the freedom that Jesus paid for on the cross. I don't know how many times it feels like every, every time communion, every time we share communion, I find myself guilty of undervaluing what Jesus did on the cross. I find myself having to repent for not giving enough value to the blood shed for me. That what he did for me was absolute. And that I can live in freedom. I don't have to be subject to my old self anymore. I don't have to be a slave to sin. He's not my boss anymore, the enemy. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God. If a person, uh, you might, I don't, I don't know if there's a term for this, but if a person has lived in prison for years and years and years, and then is set free from prison, Oftentimes, there's still this prisoner mentality where they still live like a prisoner. They've got a, a prisoner mindset, a prisoner outlook. And here it says, we're not meant to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. We're, we're done with that. We're living free. We're living new. We need to learn how to live free. And that's, again, that part of that sanctification. Um, this part is interesting. Uh, I, I find it curious that he reflects back on so much of what he's taught Romans 1 to 5 in this moment, but it's, it's powerful. It says, since you are not under law, but under grace, he, he brings back, he comes back to this issue in this point of sanctification. This is the path. This is the means by which we can live in freedom. 
And that will never happen. You're never going to get that freedom in a legalistic, performance-oriented Christian life. Uh, how many of you have had your New Year's re resolutions go badly on January 2nd? Maybe January 1st. I don't know. Um, I, I've done it a thousand, well, maybe not a thousand times, only 51. So I've only experienced a certain amount of Januaries. But it feels like I, I'm, I'm one of the people, I, I don't do as much anymore, but I'm one of the people who embrace the idea of a new start, a fresh start. I'm going to do this or I'm never going to do this again. And, and I set up these, these goals and, and these performance standards for myself and I fail. And, and sometimes I measure success by how many days, weeks, or months I can, I can go uh, following this preferred outcome. But I, in a performance-oriented standard, we're always going to fail. But this doesn't happen under grace. When who we are and what our value is, is seen in the light of the fact that we have been covered over in Christ. That we live in that grace. It's different. Steve did a great job of explaining this last night. It wasn't uh, necessarily his message, but he, he drew something out. And uh, So Steve preaches uh, quite a lot at SNL these days. Um, and uh, one of the things Steve brings to the table, he's very fatherly, very loving. That nobody leaves the room wondering about how they stand with Steve. They know they are loved by Steve. And this is a part of his testimony, and I hope I'm not sharing too much. You've been pretty public with this about uh, Saturday. I got the nod, so I'm okay. Uh, Steve had a bad dad, uh, and that's an understatement. Um, and if you ever get a chance to hear his testimony, uh, you'll hear what he lived through. And I don't know if, how much of a focus of prayer it was for Steve, but I know his heart was to never be like his father when it came to fatherhood. And uh, Joey's here today, so I'm not going to say too much. But uh, I, I think we can see by the nods around, we know how much Steve loves his boys. He's he mentioned it maybe a couple of times at SNL. A couple of times. Steve loves his boys. And uh, I think if you were to interview either of them, uh, they would have no doubt about his love for them. And God did something in the life of the Bennett family where the cycle, and it, it was a cycle, the cycle of abuse and bad fatherhood was stopped. God did a miracle in Steve. And the fruits of that are, are his boys today. And, and so Steve gives, gives examples that like it, it doesn't matter how much of a knucklehead Joey is, <laughs> whether that be ongoing or in the moment. If he does something stupid, it's not like Steve's, well, I can't love you anymore. And, and that fatherly love is such a beautiful picture of who the father is. His love for us is not performance-based. His love for us is not how well do we follow the rules. His love for us is covered over by the fact that we are seen as his children. We have been adopted in, and the way has been made for us through Jesus. Jesus made us a way for us to be adopted into God's family. And now we are seen as his sons and daughters. I'll give you a very loving example from my own life. I'm not going to use the name of my child, but um, 
just in case you think that the the Buzza family is um, all smiles and giggles, I'll, I'll share a moment with you. Um, you may not know this about me, but I like to have physical space around me. I don't like to be crowded. And that is amplified in the kitchen and at Disneyland. And um, I've, I've been on my best behavior at Disneyland, but in the kitchen, um, it's well known in my family that the dad's in the kitchen, and I'm not usually cooking anything, I'm not very good at cooking, but I clean stuff sometimes. And when I'm in there, it, I am a martyr. Like, I have, I have, I'm giving myself to the family, and so do not come in my space, because I don't like to be crowded. And even my dog likes to be in the kitchen. She thinks something's gonna fall off the counter or something, and she's gonna get it. Uh, but one of my low moments, um, one of my kids, who will remain nameless, and do not quiz my kids about this, because this is, this is anonymous, you don't know. In fact, once upon a time, there was a dad who had three kids, and this happened, okay? So anyways, um, I was feeling a little constricted. Uh, this, this child of mine was in my space, so I gave him a bump. I can't remember how big a bump it was. It might have been more aggressive than it probably should have been. Gave him a bump, get out of my kitchen. Well, this child of mine had a jug, a four liter jug of milk in their hand and decided in response to swing it and clocked me right in the head. And yeah, this is the buzzer household for you. So um, yeah, and so it was this moment and it, you could probably imagine uh, this child hits me in the head with the jug of milk and then stands and looks at me with wide eyes. I kind of stand looking at them with wide eyes. I'm pretty sure Carolee was in the room too and I think she was looking at the whole thing with wide eyes. And then I kind of started to giggle because it was a bit of a ridiculous moment and very out of character for this child, I will, I will say this. And um, we kind of got past it. And I'm telling you this story because even though I got hit in the head with a jug of milk, it doesn't change your love for a kid. Now, don't get me wrong. There are definite ongoing behaviors that can really test and, and put tension on relationships in the family. But there's something about that model that was set forward at the beginning of time of a, a father, a parental, that storge love that a parent has for a child that is unconditional. It's not based on a meritocracy. It's not based on how well they follow the rules or how often they don't hit you in the head with milk jugs. So that's, uh, let me get back to the text quickly. Uh, we are not under law, but we are under grace. Paul shows that in light of the new covenant, we are not under law, but we are under grace. His work in our life has changed everything. That has changed everything in us. And there's this illustration. Uh, once a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, there's no going back to being a caterpillar again. And this is the picture of who we are in Christ. When we come under, when we are baptized in Christ Jesus, we have made the transition, the metamorphosis from caterpillar to butterfly, and we don't go back to being caterpillars. But there's a little bit more to it. Um, here's another quote from Bruce. Uh, to treat being under the grace as an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace at all. When we've experienced the magnitude and the power of God's grace, but we just 
kind of treat it as an excuse to sin, or, or, or we, we excuse ourselves from sin because of that, it's, it's kind of, I, I don't know that we've actually got, that we actually understand God's grace in our life. Let's ask the question again in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Well, by no means. Again, he says, certainly not. Do you not know that if you present yourself present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart uh, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of unrighteousness. So the question is, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? It, it, it doesn't fit. If we've got this habitual lifestyle of sin, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with someone who is under grace. It doesn't make sense. Another question. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as one, as anyone, as obedient slaves, sorry, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Um, the one who we check in with, the one who we report to, the one who we call master, we, we become slaves of. And slaves is a tough word, and Paul will acknowledge that in just a bit. But an example for me, if I um, obey my appetite constantly, if my appetite becomes my God, and I just eat and eat and eat without consideration for my overall health, I am a slave to my appetite. I become a slave to my hunger. Um, got, uh, Paul's got a lot more to talk about when it comes to um, to slavery here, but I, I love this. The, the, the terminology here is the standard of teaching, or excuse me, the terminology I want to refer to right now, the standard of teaching, or in different... Uh, version, it says that form of doctrine. That word form is literally um, if you're building a house and you're doing the foundations, you build forms that you pour the concrete in. Here it's actually talking about uh, a metal. A, a form will be created that a, a liquid metal will be poured into and it will take the shape of that. So when we talk about the standard of teaching we're talking about something that's going to shape you and form you and, and harden you into a look. And that is that having been set free from sin. This means that sin is no longer your boss. Sin, whatever distraction God that you set up, whether it be your appetite, whether it be lust, whether it be money, what, whatever God you set up. It doesn't matter because you're not reporting to that boss any longer. You're not going to be a slave to that sin, to that distraction from the true God any longer. And so it isn't right to think about pleasing your old boss when you change jobs. If we want to die to sin, it makes no sense to report to the old boss. We've got a new boss. And in verse 19, it says this, 
this is where Paul kind of acknowledges the, the illustration. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He apologizes here for using the term of slavery as an illustration because it is degrading and pervasive. But he's just, he's trying to hammer home a point here. He knew this is an accurate and meaningful uh, illustration, however. Let me close with this. Invite, I'm going to invite the, I, I wrote down here, invite worship team up. So I said the words, invite worship team up. Worship team, can you please come up? Uh, let's finish in this last part here. It says, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, make this change. Present yourself to Christ. And this means that we don't show up to work for our old boss. If you, if you die to your sin and you are raised as a new creation, it's like you used to work at one place and now you've changed jobs and, and you, you're working over here. Well, on Wednesday, it makes no sense for you to wake up and show up for work at the old, at the old place, at the old job. That's your old job. That's who you used to be. That's what you used to do. You've got a new boss now. You got to choose to follow the King of Kings. And so our lives should look like that. We should show up to work for the new boss. We need to stop flirting with and, and checking in with and reporting to the old boss from our old life. It's uh, that word decide is sticking with me. It's that cutting off. We've decided to work somewhere else. That old boss has been cut off. Not to be revisited. We don't feel sorry for the old boss because in this case it's, it's the enemy. We don't have compassion for how, oh, he probably misses us. I should probably check in with him. Send him a little letter. Uh, that's not how it works. We cut off. We decide to work for a new boss. We have chosen a new king. And we've received with that the covering over, the immersion in Christ Jesus. And we receive the grace that comes with that. I am going to read one last part here. Verse 20. For when you were slaves to sin, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you were now ashamed? How did that go for you, your sin life? For the end of those things is death. Again, we, we talk a lot about how God's got a plan for us. And it's a good plan. His best for us is going to lead us in a place of healthy relationships. But we don't always acknowledge the fact that the enemy has a plan for us as well. He comes to seek, kill, and destroy. His plan for us is to kill us, destroy us, in the most gruesome, with the most collateral damage there possibly can be. That's his goal for you. 
He wants to break you. He wants to shatter you in a million pieces. And he wants as many people to be affected by your death. That's what he wants for you. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end, we're going to get payment from the boss we work for. The wages of sin, what you deserve, what you get out of it, when you live, when sin is your boss, is you get death. Eternal separation from God. When you choose to serve God as your boss, you get life. That's the payment for that pathway. I'm so thankful to a God who, who loves me enough to make a plan knowing that I'm going to mess up along the way. But a plan that includes insurance coverage, is a terrible metaphor, but that coverage of Jesus so that I can experience grace even when I don't deserve it. With that in mind, let's stand and let's sing one more song together. Thank you for joining us for our main service. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.